Hello and welcome Hive Mind. This is Dr. Amy Pike and Dr. Amy Learn, the Amy's, and you're listening to the Behavior Buzz podcast, a veterinary behavior podcast that aims to bring cutting edge scientific information and education to pet parents, behavior professionals, and the veterinary community. Today, we're talking about contributing factors to behavior with our very first Behavior Buzz guest, Kiki Yablon. Kiki is a Karen Pryor faculty member, has a master's in applied behavioral science, and is a co-instructor for Dr. Friedman's Behavior Works, among all of her other amazing distinctions. So join us now to set the record straight on the hottest and most controversial topics. I am your co-host, Dr. Amy Pike, a board-certified veterinary behaviorist, here with my wonderful partner in crime, the other Dr. Amy. And I am Dr. Amy Learn, also a board-certified veterinary behaviorist and co-owner of the Animal Behavior Wellness Center with the lovely Dr. Pike here in Virginia. We are coming to you live from the PRN Pharmacal Studios with our executive producer, Taryn Blaze. Thank you, Amy's. On today's episode of The Behavior Buzz, we will be discussing how all the behavior problems are the owner's fault. <gasps> Not really, just kidding. But we do have an amazing cast, Kiki Yablon. Before we get started, though, Dr. Amy's, what is getting you buzzed during today's episode? So when we were planning this episode this week, um, I had decided I was going to make a margarita using my dad's famous recipe, which contains a secret ingredient of Mountain Dew. And we'll post the recipe on our uh, website but it's so appropriate because we lost the amazing Jimmy Buffett this weekend. So I think here's to Jimmy. Here's to Jimmy. Cheers. Cheers. And I did some detective work and found the bee's knees already available in a can. So I didn't have to mix it together and took the easy way out. So this is made by 10th Ward Distilling Company from Frederick, Maryland, nearby. Shout out to a fellow woman-owned small business, and you can find all of our signature cocktail and mocktail recipes on our website, BehaviorBuzz.com. That's Behavior Buzz with six Zs, because we are busy. Kiki, what are you drinking today? <laughs> I am drinking water. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Um, because I, I just got home from a trip, and there's nothing in the refrigerator. So. That's fair. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> all right, Behavior Buzz fans, what is all the buzz about today? Our guest today came to dog training in 2005 as a novice dog guardian with an adolescent shelter dog, Pigeon. She had the good fortune to live next door to a marine mammal trainer at Chicago Shed Aquarium who turned her on to clicker training, which in turn led her to her first mentor, the amazing Laura Monaco Torelli. After graduating from KPA, she worked for Laura for eight years before moving on to focus on her own private in-home training and consulting business, Kiki Yablon Dog Training. Some of Kiki's particular training interests include loose-leash walking, excessive barking, proactive puppy raising, weird problem behaviors, and teaching and problem-solving solutions that involve arranging the environment to do most of the work. She has an extensive education history, something we absolutely applaud, including recently finishing her master's at the University of Kansas. Before becoming a dog trainer, Kiki was an editor for magazines and newspapers and currently puts those skills to use writing about the application of behavior science 
to dog training on her blog. Kiki lives in Chicago with her husband and their new dog, Finn. Kiki, we're excited to have you here today. Yay, welcome. Happy to be here. Ah, our first guest. Welcome, Kiki. Awesome. So exciting. <laughs> no, no pressure there. Yeah, no pressure. No, it's all fun, all fun, and science. <laughs> well, let's dive in, shall we? I'm going to get started with some easy questions, and we'll work our way to some more controversial topics. So I've heard people say that behavior does not occur in a vacuum. What does that actually mean? Ah, so um, it kind of comes down to a definition of behavior. Um, sort of a lay understanding of behavior, I think, is that uh, behavior is what people or organisms do. Um, but we don't just behave randomly. Um, and if you look up in, at least in behavior analysis textbooks, some of the definitions of behavior, they include interaction with an environment. So uh, the most complete, the definition that's considered the most complete is it's an organism's interaction with its environment and involves some kind of movement. And environment and movement are very broadly defined. Like your environment includes like all the pink stuff inside of your body. You guys probably know what that is, <laughs> um, being, being medical people. <laughs> um, you know, it includes like stuff happening inside the skin um, and movement can be interpreted as, you know, things moving from one brain, I don't know, you know, from a neuron to a, another neuron. I mean, you know, just stuff that happens inside your body can also be considered movement, even if it's not uh, something that other people can see. And I always like to say like a good synonym for behavior is responding, which so you can't respond with nothing to respond to. That's fascinating. I, I think, you know, talking about all the pink stuff inside your body being the environment is really important because it's not just what's happening outside, right? There, everything controls behavior. And then that movement is fascinating because we look for movement that we can see, but there's so many yeah. things that are moving internally that are still happening in real time, but that are not observable on the outside. So that's really fascinating, kind of shows you how important behavior is all the time. <laughs> so in the, in the field that I come from most recently, which is behavior analysis, like I think there are a lot of misconceptions about what we think <laughs> behavior is uh, and there, there, I think there's an important distinction to be made between what we can work with because we can see it and measure it um, and tell if what we're doing is having some effect and what we assume is going on or infer is going on inside of an animal, mm -hmm. which we can kind of we can make some guesses at, we just can't verify them. Mm -hmm. Right. Like we can guess that if um, like if you tell me if you if your observable behavior is that you tell me that you're very nervous and you're fidgeting and you're bopping your leg up and down, like I can make some assumptions about, you know, what chemicals are running around in your body because someone has observed those in a laboratory um, and I can make some assumptions about you know, if your stomach feels like my stomach might feel like flopping around, <laughs> you know, um, but I, I can't, I just, I just can't verify those directly. Right. Yeah. So and that's why it's so important to define those things, right? To actually yeah. say what is happening. And that gives everybody an idea that is hopefully the same. And so we're all looking for the same kinds of things. Great. Excellent. Well, tell me a little bit more about genetics and how those play a role. Like, 
all of these hot <laughs> topics about people getting DNA tests for their dogs. And so are, is that something that we have to do? Does everybody need to get a DNA test for their dogs so that we can kind of figure out what behavior we should be seeing? Um, well, I, I think it's hilarious that you invited a behavior analyst on to ask about genetics. <laughs> <laughs> right? No, um, I, so to back up a little bit, um, there's sort of three main your, your program is about factors that influence behavior and people have different ways of boiling those down into tidy categories, right? Like there's legs and there's other mm -hmm. things like that. Um, but what I've always learned is there's sort of three main categories, which is genetics, learning history and current conditions. And that's where you're going to be looking for the sources of behavior. And then if you're a behavior consultant or a trainer, your main focus is going to be current conditions because those are the only things that you can change because learning history already exists. Although when you change current conditions, you change future learning history. <laughs> um, and then genetics is something to take into account. But um, yeah, it is really fascinating, isn't it? Um, did yeah. you see that recent study? Uh, I think Jessica Heckman was on it about yeah. genetics and behavior. Yeah. And it seems like genetics is probably the lowest thing on our list uh, that we should probably be worried about. But also, like you said, genetics and learning history, we can't change those in any way, shape or form. So we do really have to focus on the current conditions. So. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's unknown. So I think um, I'm, I've tried to read some of the research and I actually like paid Jessica to do an hour with me to talk about the study nice. to try to. Um, understand it better. And so genetics, you know, pigs don't fly, right? You come with a body um, and that body is capable of certain things. And then there's some interesting, I think, like conceptual discussion to be had about what exactly is inherited, um, whether uh, this, Skinner wrote about this multiple times, um, like, is it the behavior that's inherited or is it the predisposition to be reinforced by certain things that's inherited? And then, you know, your body comes with things that you can do, but it's flexible. So is the behavior hardwired or inherited or is it just, you know, you, you come with a body and it makes sense to go towards things that you, <laughs> that you want right. to acquire and, but you can learn to do other things um, yeah. to get the same reinforcers. And I think that is um, so that we can, so it can be selected in sort of the same way that traits are selected on the larger scale through evolution. Our trait, our behaviors can be selected during our lifetime so that we can be successful in navigating our environment. And obviously like that's an imperfect process because look at the state of the world, but. Um, <laughs> Indeed. But you know, pig, pigs don't fly, but we do. Mm -hmm. that's, true. that's right. We can. So, <laughs> we can. And in my dreams, I fly all the time. I just want yeah. to. <laughs> yeah. And that's kind of, I feel like that's kind of your, an extreme testament to how flexible behavior is. Yeah. That's great. Right. Yeah. And, and just like with, um, you know, everything else, right. Behavior is a study of one and the, the Aussie nipping at the ankles of the kids. Aussies aren't nippers when they herd. Right. So like that doesn't even go along with like the breed quote unquote specifications yeah, it's just probably puppy so, behavior yeah probably exactly. Puppy. exactly or fear yeah. if it's if it's later on so yeah 
Okay. So, well, isn't it just the owner's fault for reinforcing all these bad behaviors by coddling the dog or spoiling them to death? <laughs> so I guess we have to ask what, what we mean by fault. And I know that you're asking this question facetiously. <laughs> um, but it's like, you know, if there's a gray area, right? If, if we acknowledge that behavior is a product of the environmental conditions, the guardian is part of the dog's environmental conditions. Um, but I don't love the term fault um, or blame. And I, of, of course, don't, don't condone calling it coddling or spoiling. And <laughs> like, I don't, I just don't use that those paradigms really, but um, I come from the perspective of sort of the rat is always right, which is a saying in behavior analysis that actually nobody knows exactly who said it first, <laughs> I think, but um, the organism is doing what it should given its genetics, its learning history and the current conditions. So behavior that seems super weird, uh, we can assume that there's a good reason for it, even if we can't trace back where it came from. Mm -hmm. um, and that includes the guardian as well as the dog. So the dog right. is the guardian's environment and the, and the dog is the, wait, did I say each one is each other's environment. And then right. for humans, you have an environment that also includes like trainers they've paid, veterinarians they've seen, um, articles they've read in the Wall Street Journal, husbands, hairdressers. Google. Know, um, Google. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. The internet. Um you know, uh, their own history with parenting or raising animals. Um, and so the, the idea of sort of locating fault is um, sort of becomes useless when you zoom out like that, I think. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I think we could flip it around and say, you know, the owner or the guardian may have more, there may be more that they can do than they think. Um, that's the flip side of, yeah. Uh, behavior being part of the environment and you being a, a big part of that environment is that you can change your behavior to change your dog's behavior. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That goes back to the whole behavior doesn't occur in a vacuum situation where everything yeah. is correlating to seeing what that outcome is. And, you know, you're right. We don't want to blame owners. And that was kind of the point of the question. People sometimes come to see us and they're like, it's all my fault. I did this or, you know, these things happen. Yeah. And I know I caused this to happen. But that's where we do take that step back and say everything, everything that's ever happened to this individual has caused this to happen. So it's not your yeah. fault. There are many contributing factors. And more mm -hmm. importantly, how do we move forward from here? Like, what do we do yeah. next to help everybody okay. in that situation? Yeah. yeah, including things that you are, you know, that I go to the vet behaviors for all the time. Um, not me personally, but, you know, with, <laughs> let's refer my clients. Um, you know, pain and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, medical conditions. Um, those are, those are part of the environment mm -hmm. uh, for the dog Absolutely. too. Pain is part of the environment. Um, and then of course, genetics, which we don't know what kind of role that plays and the role of environment on what happens with your genetics. Right. right? right. And you, right. you, you all can probably speak more to that. You know, like I've heard that separation anxiety is thought to have a genetic component. And I would I don't know much more about it than that, but I would love to hear. <laughs> <laughs> 
We'll have Jessica on as a guest sometime to talk about genetics. Mm -hmm. And you'll have to tune in later for our episode on separation-related behaviors yeah. find out all those answers. <laughs> but, I, but I do want to kind of talk more about some of these words and terms that we use when we're talking about training and behavior change. And, you know, people throw around positive punishment and reinforcement and negative and all of those different things that correlate, you know, and we combine in different ways. So aside from basics of learning theory, are there any kind of unintended repercussions for using some of these techniques, even with purely positive training? Like we know what we want to have happen, but are there other things that might happen too? Yeah, I think anytime you, what's the thing, the butterfly effect, like anytime mm -hmm. you change something, it's it has repercussions and sometimes they're unintended. Um, you know, you change the environment, you're going to change other things around it. And uh, I think, I mean, if you think about it, a lot of problem behaviors, I mean, let's, let's go away from dogs for a second. There's a lot of problem behaviors that are maintained by a positive reinforcement that's mm -hmm. delivered accidentally. Right. It's not, somebody's not training like reinforcement is not, this is one of my big soapbox speeches, but reinforcement is not like a thing that we do to animals or each other. It's just, it's like gravity. It's like a it's naturally occurring process that is just mm -hmm. going on 24 hours a day. Like, like my hip is, you know, I've been standing this way for a little while and I shift my weight this way and that behavior gets reinforced because it takes pressure off of my left hip. And, you know, there's, I want to find a pencil and I open a drawer and there's a pencil there, then I'm going to look in that drawer next time I need a pencil, unless yes. other conditions tell me that it's more likely I'll be reinforced for looking in a different drawer. <laughs> so it's just, it's stuff that happens all the time. And so uh, you develop habits um, because behaviors have been reinforced by interaction with the environment. There's, there's a lot more that affects behavior than reinforcement and punishment. Like that, those are often sort of discussed as being synonymous with operant conditioning, and that's not really accurate. Like those are two types of contingencies, but there's all kinds of other things that affect behavior, like stimulus control, antecedent uh, arrangement, um, motivating operations. So like sort of more distant antecedents, um, how different, how when there's more than one contingency in place, how they're likely to interact with each other. Um, there's extinction, there are schedules of reinforcement make a big difference in how, um, and schedules of punishment make a big difference in how behavior shapes up. So you can do a lot with the basics, but there's a lot more yeah. to it. Yeah, absolutely. You often hear people who are arguing for the use of aversive mm -hmm. training, like positive reinforcement creates this, you know, these food, obnoxious food related behaviors and blah, blah, blah. And the answer isn't to not use positive reinforcement. I think the answer is to use positive reinforcement better. Yeah. Right. So, Definitely. I agree. Exactly. Yep. So with that, Kiki, we're going to take a quick break with a word from our sponsors. PRN stands for pro re nada, a Latin phrase meaning as the circumstance arises. Since 1978, the veterinary community has trusted PRN Pharmacal to be here when needed with industry-leading research and innovative products designed to improve animal health and quality of life. PRN Pharmacal is a proud sponsor of the Behavior Buzz podcast and is committed to the physical and emotional health of animals everywhere. 
PRN Pharmacal, here when you need us. All right, well, let's get back down to business. Um, now I want to kind of talk about dog emotions. Uh, do dogs feel the same things that we do? Like, is my dog spiteful for leaving him all day and that's why he destroys all my stuff? <laughs> I had a client once who asked me, um, do dogs love? And I was like, do people? I know. Like, what? Like, like, what is I the can't... operational definition? <laughs> yeah, like what are we talking about? Oh my god, my favorite, um, my favorite example of, um, like you know, pop culture example, not research example of how behavior, um, how emotions are learned, is uh, there's this viral video of this little kid on a toilet, um, and his dad's sitting in front of him, and he keeps saying to his dad, um, "I didn't poop, I paid," and then the dad is like crying starts crying because he's laughing so hard and uh -huh. the kid's whole face like drops and he's like daddy daddy are you sad daddy you're sad and he's Aww. like no 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 i'm not sad i'm not sad like sometimes we laugh when we you know, we cry when we laugh or whatever and and like you know yeah the kid had learned to this point that crying meant you were sad right now he was learning that that crying can mean something can else. mean happy I think one of the hard parts too that I find with my clients is that when they try and assign these like emotions like spite or guilt or those types yeah. of things that we're, you know, again, not entirely sure that dogs feel, it does sort of preclude treatment, right? Like if, if my dog is being spiteful, it definitely leads more towards like, I want to punish that behavior versus try and change the underlying emotion. Um, yeah. That's kind of what I found anyway. Yeah. I mean, the words that we use are really important, I think, because for humans, those are stimuli that affect our behavior. Yeah. Yeah. Right. If you if you think it's spite or a moral failing or, mm -hmm. you know, something, then you have learned to respond to that a certain way. Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, I even think, you know, I think it's okay to say, to talk about those constructs as occurring in animals. But we can say the dog was upset and maybe that they were trying, assume they're trying to get out and get to the owner and that they're panicking and stuff. And I don't have any problem with that. Where, where it gets weird is where we take those concepts, right? Like the dog is doing this because the owner is on the other side of the door. Mm -hmm. um, and we say, uh, we call that spite. And then we say the spite is causing the digging but the spite right. is really just describing mm -hmm. the digging in terms that we have learned to use for those right. sorts of behavior under those sorts of conditions right but then when we start to put the cause in the spite in then we turn the spite into this tangible entity that lives inside of the animal or what was Descartes thought like it like communicates to you through your pineal gland or something mm -hmm. yeah. like I forget. <laughs> yeah um you know, it turns into this unseen force that is the cause and that you can't do anything about because it's not accessible. Mm -hmm. um, so I always I would say sort of like to take one one step out or one zoom out one frame or whatever to, okay, what is, if you want to call it spite, what's causing the spite? Right. right. You yeah. know, um, yeah. but I think it's also better to explain to people that 
that spite is not that useful of a label and right. to, to call it. I mean, maybe maybe it's just more useful to use another label like panic or fear sure. that engenders different behavior from the from the owner, the human. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I say when I um, counsel my clients. I always start by saying that dogs don't have a moral compass. They don't experience altruism. So their behavior is a choice that they're making to solve a problem. So what is that problem that we're dealing with? How are they choosing to deal with it? And then what are maybe some of those emotions involved? And that's how we can start to get through what the solutions might be, right? Kind of part of that yeah. functional analysis. You know, your your brain does your brain does something, your adrenal gland does something, mm -hmm. your stomach does something. Um, and some of those responses are automatically triggered by the environment, like respondent or reflexive behavior where you've learned, you know, a new thing to elicit that, that response through, through pairing, through association. And then there's, you know, behavior that you've learned to do to better your situation under the same conditions, but it's the conditions that are the most useful thing to look at because those are because that's what we can change totally yeah. yeah and i want to jump from that to kind of talking about then some of the solutions for these problems right you know oftentimes it whether we're talking about if it's the owner's fault or not or who's involved or how that behavior happens you know does the owner need to be involved in the process of changing behavior can't we just send that dog or go through a drive-through fixed training situation and then, then we come out the other side and the dog's perfect and everything's good or you know what is that relationship with the owner and how does that affect what happens with behavior change well i think that for me like the whole point of get of having an animal live in your house is um well it could be like the old onion article there was an old onion headline that was like do you like boxes of shit in your house <laughs> <laughs> but, I think, but i think for more people it's that you want a relationship with an animal um and then we have to ask well what does a relationship look like right um mm -hmm. you know uh susan friedman has a definition i think that's like you know a history of mutually reinforcing interactions um i think also like training, the, the point of training for me is to set up a system of two-way communication so the dog can tell me what they need and I can tell the dog what I need and yeah, uh, you know, we can have like a dialogue mm -hmm. um, as opposed to like a master sub servant kind of mm -hmm. relationship, yes. the old, old paradigm with dogs. Mm -hmm. um, so a, good, a trainer can do a lot um, mm -hmm. if they're paying attention to what is going to need to cue and reinforce the behaviors that the, the guardian needs to happen and mm -hmm. to, to live harmoniously with the dog. And I think about like Ken Ramirez's um, conservation work mm -hmm. where they don't, they don't want um, people to have to herd the elephants, elephants. on mm -hmm. a different migration path. They want the environment to kind of tell the mm -hmm. elephants where to go so that they stay inside of the protected preserve yes. and don't get poached. So yeah. amazing. Um, I know. So I think that you, you, you can actually do more than you might think as a trainer to help dogs live more happily with humans without the, the guardian being intimately involved in the training, but they do need to learn. I think they need to learn how behavior works. 
Mm -hmm. um, and that behavior doesn't just keep going in the same direction if it's not producing the same effects. Um, and so I think they need to learn like what's, what's making this behavior change and how to kind of maintain it. And then mm -hmm. I think that probably improves their relationship. Totally. In sort mm -hmm. of a naturalistic way. Like they have more mutually inner, you know, reinforcing interactions with their dog. Right. No, so. oh, that's great. All right, Kiki, this has all been so fascinating. So what is a current emerging topic about dog behavior that is fascinating to you? Myself and lots of the folks I hang out with and talk to are really interested right now in uh, reducing the use of extinction. There's some interesting research happening in, in behavior analysis in general, uh, sort of demonstrating that you, you maybe don't need to take away all reinforcement for the problem behavior. And so there's, there's lots of different places where people are exploring this. Um, there was like a, 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 some research in, I think it's 2010, it's Athens and Vollmer on differential reinforcement of alternative behavior without extinction in which the goal was to see what the effect was of just manipulating like different parameters of reinforcement for the problem behavior. So like maybe you still reinforce the problem behavior, but it's like less good. <laughs> it's like less, less reinforcement, shorter, um, shorter duration, lesser quality, lesser quantity, um, delay, a little bit of delay. What I think is interesting is, you know, reinforcers are not inherently reinforcers. Like they're reinforcers in context, like they either increase behavior or they don't. And so I kind of think like, well, what are they if you, if they're in context of like the, the less good option, like that's an interesting thing to think about. Like, and I think that might be what's happening in the whole like literature of punished by rewards. Uh, Alfie Cohn, like, you know, you give it, kid is reading just fine on their own and then you give them some small amount of money for reading and they stop doing it. Maybe it's a reward, but I don't think it's a reinforcer, right? So, so I think there's an interesting connection there. There's a, there's research. Um, this was interesting because Ken Ramirez did this project um, with a beluga. There was a beluga who was, I hope I don't mess this up. Sorry, Ken, at the shed who was swimming away from basically, I think, more novice trainers. Um, and his theory was that, that the novice trainers had started to extend the least reinforcing scenario procedure where they sort of do a, like a like into a mini timeout, negatively punishing the, the dolphin when they didn't do a cue and the dolphin, or sorry, the beluga was like, I'll see you later and sort of generalized it to like people he did, people she didn't, hadn't worked with before. Um, and so Ken had this idea to teach her um, that she could do one of two behaviors to get the same fish. She could, there, he put a buoy in the water and she, when given a cue, she could either do the cue and get the fish, do the behavior and get the fish or touch the buoy and get the same fish. So the buoy was sort of conceptualized maybe as like a no, <laughs> right? And so reinforcing saying no in that way rather than having the beluga swim off and losing them, 
And what he found was that the beluga, after a certain amount of time doing having that option with a new trainer, would start to respond to the cues more. This comes from a Jesus Rosales Ruiz presentation that you can find on the Clicker Expo you know, video site. It's called Don't Fight Extinction. And it's basically like if you're in an environment where the problem behavior has been reinforced, there are cues in that environment to do the problem behavior. And if you try to not reinforce the problem behavior in that setting, you're going to get extinction side effects mm -hmm. like intensity and variability and things that we might label frustration. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so if you decide what the skill is that you need and you teach it in a different clean setting, and then you introduce some kind of cue that you can then transfer back into your problem setting once the behavior has reinforcement history that you're going to be more successful and you're going to get less sort of frustration. Love that. Yeah. And since we're talking about frustration, <laughs> I'd like to see if there's a controversial topic that really makes you mad or frustrated. I don't know how controversial this actually is. This is something I posted about yesterday on Facebook, but somebody somebody had posted a meme that was that I've seen before from both dog owners and rescue people and trainers saying like reasons to rehome your dog, you died, that's it. And that that makes me mad. Yeah, because, me too. Um, because I think uh, well as I as I wrote yesterday my, my dog Finn is, uh, was rehomed to me from a client, a really long-term dear, wonderful family, um, where I had worked with their dogs for on and off for five years. Uh, like they, they did a lot of stuff with their dogs and they had sort of trained all of their dogs and then they, they foster failed and they, they got a new dog who they, and they were at a time where they didn't have as much time to do training. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's sort of where I came in, but then I ended up kind of working with all the dogs in different ways over the next five years. And what happened, uh, sometime during COVID, one of the dogs that the dog that they had foster failed with developed some uh, arthritis and started to aggress toward one of the other dogs. The first thing we did with the sudden behavior change is refer to a vet. Um, the arthritis was diagnosed and treated as a result of that. It reduced the incidence, but it didn't totally resolve things. It just, and my dog had recent, Pigeon had recently passed away and I loved all of their dogs. And so I ended up with Finn, who is basically the dog I've always wanted. <laughs> the owners felt really, uh, I think, shamed by these ideas floating around out there that you should never rehome your dog, no matter what, no matter how hard it is, you should just tough it out and do training and crate and rotate. And, and I just think this dog had a great family first, has a, I think a great family now. <laughs> and I'd like to see that stigma kind of go away. And I'm not saying there's not people irresponsibly rehoming. And I don't, I don't like those blanket. The only reason is that you died. Yeah. That's a study of one, just like always. Yeah. Yep. And sometimes, honestly, like like in this case with Ben, it is better for the dog in the long run, right? He has a better quality of life. So if people can't keep their dog for whatever reason, um, it, it can be just a better thing. And speaking of controversial topics, 
I'd like to invite you all to join us next time where we talk about social media dog trainers and how their methods aren't always magic. <laughs> yeah, it should be an yeah. exciting topic. <laughs> so definitely. Kiki, Kiki, last question to you. How do we unite the world of dog training and move everyone ahead instead of continuing to embrace some of these older outdated theories? Well, I if I had the answer to that, I would be president. <laughs> You'd make a good one. Not, yeah. I don't think it's a dog training problem. I think it's a human. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't even know if it's a problem. It's just the way things are, mm-hmm. you know, uh, like the answer is probably education, but we can't get that sorted with humans in many other fields either. I mean, we have, and I don't even know that regulation is the way to do it, honestly, yeah. because we have regulation in medicine and we have Dr. Phil and we do and just focus on what I can control. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is helping the, the person or the dog or the group um, in front of me. And I think that's probably the best that it's going to get. Mm-hmm. That's great. Great. Well, we really appreciate you taking your time out of this afternoon. And we're going to head into the next section. So we here end every show with our buzz kill section in which we allow our guests, that's you, to bring up some special story controversies or the weirdest thing a client or patient ever did or said. And then the hive mind, which is our audience, will vote, is it buzzworthy? Winning. Or a buzz kill. <laughs> like one of my favorite cases recently was a strange um, situation where uh, uh, a fellow trainer who I really, really have become really good friends with now. Um, like she would put the food down and he would like lay down like six feet away from it and look at it. Mm-hmm. And this is something that could easily, I could see easily people attributing this to breed somewhat. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause he's a border collie, but it could also just as easily be, you know, I think she was his, she was not his first home. Um, I think people do a lot of training with stuff like that. Like mm-hmm. I'm going to put your food down and you can't go to it yet. It'll be taken mm-hmm. away. He was more likely to eat if she wasn't looking and she had never done any training like that, but it's possible that he had experienced some of that training and, and, you know, gone border collie with it. Um, <laughs> That's a technical term. Yeah. Um, But uh, he was basically not getting enough calories to support the activities that she wanted to do with him. And he was losing weight. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, and she had done a lot of things that I would have tried first. Mm -hmm. (laughs) She tried all different kinds of foods. She tried feeding him out of all different kinds of containers. Um, She was feeding him. He would eat. She had worked really hard on him eating from her hand during training. Mm -hmm. Um, She had tried, they had tried having different people feed him. And so we took kind of one of the approaches that I was talking about earlier. The first thing was like, okay, what, in what environmental conditions does he eat? Is he most likely to eat? And fortunately she, um, she had taken data. So she had, she had actual information on when he was most likely to eat. And it was something like uh, every day and a half, if he hadn't eaten for a day and a half, he was likely to eat 
most of his food out of the bowl. And he, um, I think it was in the evening and if she wasn't looking. Interesting. Um, and then we s- sort of looked for like, okay, so if the food is not reinforcing the eating, like most of the time, what could, what does he really like that we could use to reinforce a little bit of eating and then shape longer eating? Um, and that we decided to try letting him out the back door, which he loved. Mm-hmm. Um, and also if there maybe was an escape function of some kind, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know, uh, that would help satisfy it. Um, and then we said, well, okay, what, what kind of cue could we put on this? It's just like, you know, if you capturing, right. like we're going to capture eating and then we're going to mm-hmm. put it on some cue that we can tr- then move around. Right. Mm-hmm. So we decided to drop a drop a scarf next to the bowl and then she left and she watched him, I think, on a little camera that she had set up. And so if he ate with the scarf present, if he ate like three bites of food or something or three seconds of eating, then she let him out. She had already checked with the vet to make sure there was no, no medical reason that he was not eating. There was no gastrointestinal right. issue. And, um, and we also okayed it with the vet to start out with like, okay, well, we're just going to do it, feed him every day and a half because that's when he's eating anyway. Right. Um, and the vet said that was okay. So, so she sort of captured the eating in the, under these circumstances and was able to quickly raise the criteria for how much he had to eat before she opened the door. And then she had an interesting thing happen, which is she dropped the scarf and the, a power transformer blew up outside. Oh no. And that ruined everything. Everything. Uh, um, but what was really interesting is she got rid of the scarf and introduced a new scarf and was able to get it back. Nice. Oh my so gosh. That, that gave us some idea that maybe the scarf was actually a significant part of this. Like, so yeah. we were able to like get rid of that dirty antecedent and uh, introduce a clean one. And so she got it back. And then I think what happened is she, she was driving across country to go live somewhere else for a residency. And so it kind of forced her to push it a little Mm -hmm. bit. And she was able to get eating in with the scarf at different times of day and two meals a day. And And then she went on this road trip and like he Mm -hmm. ate in hotel rooms where she wasn't able to, where she wasn't able to like hide. Like it was mm-hmm. just, they're all in a room together. She right. was able to go out of the, out of sight. Yeah. By the time that um, I met them, her and the dog, uh, last year at APDT, he was eating very, like it was his job, she said. And um, she actually forgot uh, her bowl. And so he was like eating out of an ice bucket lid. <laughs> like, Whatever's available. Yeah, so he's, he's, a, he's become a good eater. So that was... Um, that is probably the most exciting recent. I think it's cool. All right. Well, here at the Behavior Buzz, we know you're all busy bees who live and die by the science, like we do. So we'll put the references and studies mentioned in today's show on the website. So buzz on over to the Honeypot page to find those. We also want to be able to highlight Kiki, our guest. So Kiki, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you have going on right now, you know, in all your spare time. Where can people find you? Yeah. Um, my website is kikiyablondogtraining.com. Um, and I have an Instagram account and a Facebook business page under that um, rubric. I think Instagram is better, although lately I've just not been feeling like doing anything on social media. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
I am always teaching the Karen Pryor Academy, um, and I have applications open right now for three of uh, three national series where you are online with me for six months, and then we have a five-day workshop, and those are based in Iowa, uh, Des Moines, Iowa, Nashville, Tennessee, and Salt Lake City, Utah. Um, and I'll be presenting at both of the Clicker Expos early next year. Great. Great. You too can learn from Kiki. That's right. Go find her. So then we just want to say a big thank you to our guest today, Kiki Ablon. Thank you. And also thank you to the sponsor for today's episode. It's all your fault. Thank you for having me. And an even bigger thank you to our hive mind. Without listeners like you, we would have nothing to buzz on about. So grab a drink or a mocktail and join us next time for cocktails and conversations. Follow Behavior Buzz on Facebook. You know how to spell it. And on Instagram at Behavior Buzz. And on our website, BehaviorBuzz.com. Be positive. Be informed. Now buzz off. Thank you to our sponsor, Melena Martini Incorporated, founder of the Separation Anxiety Certification Program for Dog Professionals and creator of the Mission Possible online course for guardians. Melena and her team of certified separation anxiety trainers work remotely with clients whose dogs are suffering from separation anxiety. Whether you are a dog owner or a dog professional, find the perfect resources to start your separation anxiety journey at melenademartini.com. Thank you to our premium sponsor, PRN Pharmacal, the makers of Reconcile. Reconcile is an FDA-approved drug for the treatment of canine separation anxiety in conjunction with a behavior modification plan. PRN Pharmacal is committed to meeting the evolving needs of modern veterinary medicine and dedicated to developing products to strengthen the bond between pets and their people. This episode is made possible by our premium sponsor, Nestle Purina ProPlan Veterinary Diets and Supplements. Ask your veterinarian if Purina Pro Plan veterinary diets and supplements are right for your pets. While the Behavior Buzz podcast provides clinical insight into veterinary medicine and veterinary behavior, these statements are not intended to diagnose or treat a particular patient. If you have concerns about your pet, please contact your veterinarian or your nearest veterinary behaviorist.